Hi, I'm Rachel O'Mara. I'm the host of the PauseCast. I'm also the author of Pause, Harnessing the Life-Changing Power of Giving Yourself a Break, as well as a private coach for men and women who are struggling with how to get out of overwhelm and reclaim their lives. The PauseCast is dedicated to helping individuals learn the tools and be more self-aware that we can all be more capable of to live our best life, to reach our potential. Whether this is your first time listening or you're a regular, I invite you to download my free gift to you, which is a blueprint called The Three Keys to Stay Out of Overwhelm and Thrive. The blueprint is available at my website, www.rachelomera.com. Get it today so you can start to implement these tools that we can all learn. And that's what the podcast is all about. Welcome everyone to the podcast. I am super, super thrilled this morning. I am here with Dr. Ellen Langer. Hi, Ellen. How are you? Good to see you again, Rachel. Always good to see you. And I want to share a little bit about Dr. Langer before we jump in. You may know her uh, from her numerous books out, including Counterclockwise and uh, her studies. Uh, I think, Ellen, one of your gifts is all the studies that you bring to the world on research and mindfulness and what it really means, whether it's aging studies or awareness studies, and they're so powerful. So you are a social psychologist, and you were the first female tenured professor in psychology at Harvard lovely accolades there. You've won three distinguished awards. One of them was the uh, the Liberty Award. What was the full name no, of that it's one? Three Distinguished Scientist Awards. Scientist and then you're award. referring to the Liberty Science Genius Award. Okay, good. We got that out. Beautiful, of beautiful. And one last thing about Ellen, because she's so modest. She's the mother of positive psychology and the mother of mindfulness. So welcome, Ellen. I know you and My I have pleasure. known each other. Yeah, for a few years, you came to Google and I had you, um, I hosted you to speak to the leaders, Google School for Leaders. So it's an honor to, to be with you again and, and learn a little more from you. I am wondering if you would be up for leading us in your version of a pause. Would you be up for that? <laughs> California right. style, as you say? Sure. First, people need to understand that uh, mindfulness, as I've been studying it for over 40 years, is mindfulness without meditation. It's so easy, it almost defies belief when they tell you about the um, results of being mindful. But before we get to that, because we're gonna have to do a pause, um, mindfulness is the simple act of noticing. That's all. If you notice new things about the things you thought you knew, you come to see you didn't know them at all, and then your attention naturally goes to them. So this act of noticing whether you're noticing new things about things that are familiar or familiar things about things that seem to be brand new. In both cases, the neurons are firing and our research shows that it's literally and figuratively enlivening. So I guess the easiest thing for people to do now is just look around the room, look at something they think they know, a lamp, a couch, a person, and just notice three or five new things about it. When we do this with relationships, where people think they know the other person, um, and they notice 
different things about the way they're looking, the way they're sounding, walking, anything, the relationships start to come alive again. Um, so I don't know if noticing a lamp at this point is going to be effective, but it doesn't matter. I have so much data showing that when you're more mindful, your memory improves, your relationship improves, you're considered more charismatic, attractive, you become healthier, many, many studies on health. Um, it's, uh, as I said, literally and figuratively enlivening. But the fun thing, as I've just said, it bears repeating, it's so easy. Uh, now, meditation is not mindfulness. Meditation is what you engage in to result in post-meditative mindfulness. This is sort of a, a more immediate, not better, not worse, just different. Mm. Thank you. I love no, active noticing and noticing new things. And I think that is what catches me and others off guard is that it is so easy. And it's almost like you don't even want to try it because you're like, that'll never work. Forget it. Well, but it's also the case that after these 40 some odd years of research, we find that virtually all of us are mindless almost all the time. But the that would be autopilot, is, right? Like that's right. the autopilot. Yeah, exactly. But when you're mindless, you're not there. So you're not there to know that you're not there. And so, um, you know, in talks that I give, I might uh, give people little things to make them realize that they don't know. Yeah. Another way of understanding mindlessness is that you're frequently in error, but rarely in death. So let's take one. So Rachel, how much is one in one? One in one is two. Okay. Now that's what we're taught. So if somebody asks you that, you tune out, you don't pay any attention. And it turns out one in one is two if you're using a base 10 number system. If you're using a base two number system, most people don't even know there are other number systems. One plus one is written as 10. Easier to understand mm -hmm. if you take one watt of chewing gum and you add it to one watt of chewing gum, one plus one equals one. One pile of laundry plus one pile of laundry, one plus one equals one. So in the real world, rather than the world of abstractions, one plus one probably doesn't equal two as often as it does. But again, when we think we know, we tune out. Yeah, and we don't know that we don't know. I love, like your quote is so powerful and uh, it's, it's true. And that's what we think in these assumptions, these assumptive words, the world of, of like no, thinking what we know, the base 10 number system. Yeah. Um, so one of the things right now, well, so many people are suffering from uh, nervousness about COVID yeah. is that people think, oh my gosh, everything is so uncertain now, I don't know how to cope. What they need to understand is two years ago, things were just as uncertain. Six months ago, it was just uncertainty is the rule, not the exception. So when we think we know, like one and one is two, it's because we're holding everything constant. But it's just our mindsets that are holding it still. The phenomenon is actually always in flux. We could never, and you could say, you know, would we have predicted Obama uh, three years before he was elected president? Would we have predicted Trump, um, you know, even the day of the election? You know, probably not. And um, yeah. so when we recognize that we, we never knew, uh, however you cope with not knowing in the past is the way you can cope with it right now. And the likelihood of any one of us getting the virus, if we're washing our hands, practicing, uh, you know, social distance, um, doing, taking ordinary 
steps that have been defined by experts, the likelihood of getting the virus is very low. And so to waste precious moments being stressed about it probably is not sensible when it turns out that stress is probably the leading cause of most illness. It so is. You stress it is. being afraid you're going to get the illness, but that stress itself is making you sick. It's the catch-22, right? It is. Yeah. And then we're all fretting and uh, in that uncertainty because my sense is, and I'd love to hear your, your, your thought, is we're, we're exposed to more uncertainty. There's always been uncertainty, but we're like more aware of it because we're not well, we're able to go to regular it, routines. Yeah. No, we're aware of the uncertainty now. But if we remember all the things we thought, you know, everything is the same until it's not. And things have always been changing. And, you know, you can ask CEOs of major companies. Uh, you can probably answer this easier than I, um, Rachel. But, you know, you, you produce typewriters and you're writing high and all of a sudden uh, computers are invented. And you, you know, put a lot of money in uh, 45 records and then CDs or whatever the next you know, change was. But these, these are changes that change everything. The iPhone has changed the way all um, smartphones, but especially the iPhone. Yeah. I should yeah. be saying that to Google people, but- That's okay. <laughs> We're all on, I, I say it too. I say Zoom when we have Google Meet, I get in trouble right. all the time. But uh, right. yeah, I, I think that's spot on. And, and I, I wanted to ask you what your sense of this defensive pessimism is? Like, how does that okay, relate yeah. to COVID-19? So I've just written about this. Um, it's interesting because, you know, while people are so worried about the virus, lots of people have an attitude of defensive pessimism. What that means is they believe you should expect the worst, so somehow you can prepare for it, and hope for the best. And I find both parts of that uh, to be problematic. First of all, to- so hope for the worst. Uh, Say that again, hope for the worst. No, expect the worst. Expect the worst, good. And hope for the best. And hope for the best. So while you're expecting the worst, it turns out that we typically get what we expect. Everything is very complicated. Everything can be understood in so many ways. If you're looking for those negatives, you're going to find them. And again, that's going to cause more stress. But the interesting thing is um, hope. Now. Hope feels like something positive, doesn't it? And it's certainly better to be hopeful than hopeless. However, hope also is a negative expectation. So, Rachel, do you drink coffee in the morning? Or tea? Oh, I gave it up. I have... Okay, uh, what do you do in the green, morning? I, so, I have, I have a, a green tea, basically. Okay, green tea. So, you get out of bed and you do whatever you're going to do. And then you go to the kitchen. You don't hope you can have green tea. You know you're going to have green tea. So you see. You no, know it's in the cupboard. You're waiting for it all morning. Okay, right, right. But the point is that hoping builds in, has built into it the possibility that it's not going to be there, but things are not going to work. Mindful optimism, in contrast to this, isn't putting your head in the sand. What it is, is making a plan, as we said, doing some social distancing, washing your hands, wearing a mask and then just going about your business. And if you do that, what's happening is that you're becoming stronger and stronger um, so that if in fact you do end up getting sick, you're better able to deal with it. 
this defensive pessimistic style, you're stressed almost all the time, which weakens the system and then makes you more vulnerable. Um, so none of us know what's going to happen. We never knew what's going to happen. And the idea is to just go about living, living in the moment, making the moment matter. Life only consists of moments. And you don't have to worry about next week, next year, <coughs> getting this or that. Uh, all you need to do is make the next moment matter. And it's a much easier task for all of us. <coughs> when you do that, you've built up the resources. So should anything occur, again, you're better able to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I'm catching, I'm catching what you're sharing in that it's uh, intentional. So bringing the intention into that mindful optimism of, of like, okay, what is my plan? How am I going to go about my day? So I feel that I feel good, that I don't feel this manic, the, 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 right. the panic stress and the things that would and could deter me, but that, that, that can make an act that can make a real difference. And then well, it turns out that stress relies on two things. One is a belief that something's going to happen. And two, that when it happens, it's going to be awful. So you need to combat both of those. So the first, that something is going to happen. Well, we've just said you can't predict. So if you take the something, whatever the something is, and you give yourself five reasons why it won't happen. So there you went from, oh my God, it's going to happen, to maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. That's like auto, like auto correcting, like in yeah, exactly. like a word doc. It's almost like you get to re, re change your thought. Yeah. All right. So now you don't think things are necessarily going to happen then. And this is hard to believe in the age of COVID, but excuse me, with respect to everything, everything cuts both ways. It all depends on how you look at it. So if you said, what are three, five possible advantages of whatever this feared thing is? You know, that should it happen, forget COVID, almost anything else, you know, should you be fired? You're worried about being fired. So now we've said, um, rather than spend the time worrying, you say to yourself, okay, one or three reasons, five reasons, I probably won't be fired. So now you don't know you will be, you won't be, but you're at least less certain that you're going to be. Then if we say, what are the advantages of being fired? Well, there are many. Nobody who is spending their time being afraid of being fired is being nurtured while they're at work. And in some cases, if you're not going to starve to death, you're better off um, because it's very hard for us to make changes. So if it happens to us rather than us freely leaving, then we can create the lives that um, uh, are better for us to be living, things that are more meaningful to us. It's terrible. I think of this, you know, these people who go to work for eight, 10 hours a day, hating what they're doing. And part of that is because this culture has this mistaken assumption that work has to be stressful. I don't think anything has to be stressful. And that, you know, then you have people, business gurus, um, you know, nice, smart people, but who will say things like, well, you want to have some work-life balance. Now, like hope, like it's better to be to have hope than be hopeless, it's better to have work-life balance than work-life imbalance. However, there's again a better way, which is a work-life integration. You wanna be the same person you are, whether you're at work, at play. Um, and so to do that, you have to give up some of these mindless understandings you have about work. Yeah. Reduce that stress. I think that's so powerful. And I think that 
I think people are looking for a magic solution, like what you're sharing about. If I only correct my work-life balance, if I only have less stress, but there's not necessarily a plan in place. And that's what I'm hearing from you is this positive spin on things. Yeah. No, no, it's not, it's not a spin because a spin sounds like here's the real thing. And we're going to, you know, turn it around to make it look like something other there. There's no right, you know, in the proverbial glass half empty, it's also half full. That's not a spin. It's just, you know, you might see me as gullible from my perspective. I'm trusting. It's not mm-hmm. a spin on it. I may see you as inconsistent. You see yourself as flexible. Yeah. So everything can be understood in many ways. And the point that people have to realize is by not choosing, but falling into a single-minded way of seeing things, then they're vulnerable to whatever follows from that understanding. They have to realize that by and large, um, our emotions are choices. Our emotions follow from the frames we choose. So if I'm going to see you as inconsistent, I'm not gonna care about you, wanna spend time with you, whatever. If I see you as flexible, then you become very appealing to me. If you see me as impulsive, you might not wanna have anything to do with me. But if you see me as spontaneous, then you're gonna seek me out. So very different behaviors follow from just a change of the frame. And most of us have been taught to learn the world in the same way we learn that one and one is two. Someone just told us and we assumed that was it, there are no alternatives, um, or we memorized it in school. Whatever the case is, uh, we're holding the world still when it's better for us to uh, understand that it's naturally varying. Mm-hmm. which provides all sorts of opportunities for us. Yeah, yeah. And if I'm hearing everything and kind of taking this in as an integration of, of what it means for people who are feeling stressed and overwhelmed in the, in the world right now more than ever probably is this idea of it's not necessarily achieving a work-life balance. It's not necessarily having hope or these, these changes, but it's the work-life integration and reframing of how I can see things and choosing in the moment, what I can maybe focus on that's, that is positive or, or taking the time for myself that I know I need potentially, if, instead of being in that fight or flight or well, stressed yeah. out zone, right? Well, I mean, as far as the work-life balance, what that consists of is, um, you know, in a gross way, um, that work is hard and stressful and home life, you know, hopefully is less so. Hopefully, yes. Um, I don't think people should accept work as stressful. I don't think that uh, they should go, they should make it fun. Everything is fun. You know, there's this wonderful little video that people should watch. It's called Piano Stairs. I think it was someplace in Scandinavia. Do you know it? I'll put it in the show notes. I don't think so. Let me tell you. So they're in the subway and you have an escalator right next to stairs and virtually everybody takes the escalator. So that it goes on, you see people taking the escalator. Now what they do is they lay down on the stairs, a piano keyboard. So as you walk up the stairs, you're making noise, do, 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 do. Okay, now because it's such fun, everybody is taking the stairs. All right, you know, so things that were arduous could become fun. Um, You don't need to wait for somebody to put the keyboard down there. You can just, you know, sing as you're going up the stairs yourself. 
You know yeah. that when you're, if you're doing, uh, if I'm at your house and you make me dinner, which I hope will happen sometimes. I hope so. And this all passes. You're invited. Um, I, I'm gonna, you know, volunteer and almost insist on doing the dishes. Doing somebody else's dishes is often fun. So why <laughs> is it doing your own dishes isn't fun? I really you see what I'm saying. Yeah. You know. Um, so well, what I'm people, yeah what I'm what I'm hearing too. You want to um, speak? Why should I let you speak? The fact <laughs> is, your podcast is hard. I got something to say. Hang on no, a second. Say it, get it say back. It. No. Well. Well. What I'm hearing is this is like the play in in what you do do. Whether it's you know going up an awesome staircase with with the sound already from a keyboard, but but making it fun, making it playful, where we can learn and be in the moment because we're not in that head zone of oh I got to do this or that and the next thing and that's what I wanted to share and that I um, am reminded of how powerful that can be and we've lost that I think in the work world a lot even where I work like number one place to work basically at Google and and people are super stressed out there too so it's like it, it's got to be about your attitude or, or what you can do yeah. in the moment and, and do well, it. it's interesting that you know I've gotten calls from media for gosh for many many years saying there's so much information out there. How are people able to cope? Because that's part of the reason that people are so stressed at work. And I make them aware that there really, there's no more information now than there ever was. What is different is people thinking that their performance will be greatly improved if they take in more information. The interesting thing, Rachel, is I haven't been able to find any evidence for that. Hmm. that more information actually improves whatever you're doing. Now, certainly if you have no information, you don't even have to start <laughs> whatever it is. Um, but thinking mindfully about what you're doing uh, as you're doing it is probably going to yield greater benefits than just mindlessly gathering more and more data. Yeah. Um, and uh, so if you said you have enough right now to do it, whatever the it is, then okay that removes part of the burden and if in doing it you you know you make it fun that doesn't mean it can't be a serious task but it, you know i was with my grandkids the other day and we we're driving they're pretty and fun. what they're pretty fun grandkids oh, they're great they have five-year-old twins beautiful Next fun. anyway and so again so i said okay what color is the next oncoming car going to be and so you know I know that more cars are black, so of course I'm going to win the game. You're going to totally hedge <laughs> those bets. Then I vary. Black, black, black. But, no, but it, it was a very simple way to change this drive into something that even I was enjoying. Gee, I, I want to play that game play. actually now because I yeah. want to, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm already in, like I can see, yeah, just even that spark of like, ooh, that sounds cool. Right. So I get well, it. We, we did a study a long time ago where we had people doing the task where they did it as if it was work or as if it were play. And, but they did the exact same task. Now, oddly, the task mm. was reading cartoons. Reading cartoons. Reading the cartoons, like in a newspaper? And, like the funnies? Uh, no, we just gave them, you know, uh, yeah. pages okay. of cartoons and evaluating how funny they thought it was. So this was the task. It should have been fun in and of itself, but because it was work, they didn't enjoy it, their minds wandered, they wanted to be paid more for doing it, you know, and so on. So we can take things that are fun and make them into work, things that are work and make them into fun. I think that, um, you know, if I'm not enjoying what I'm doing, 
by and large, I'm not going to do it. Life is too short. And that doesn't mean that you have to flit around from one activity to the other, that you can take even, you know, so uh, I did the study that you might know of with chambermaids. So chambermaids were on, were on my mind every time I talk about the study. And I know that most of you listening say, oh gosh, wouldn't that be a boring occupation? And I say, no, everything can be fun. So what are they doing? They're making beds all day long, but they're making beds that strangers slept in. And those sheets are like a dime store novel. Those sheets will tell you, if you know how to read them, if they could tell exactly how many people were in that bed and what they did and how well they slept and how well they enjoyed it. You know, whatever uh, physical activities they're engaged in. It's all yes. there in the sheets. But for most of us, it's just a sheet. You know, it's like one and one is two. There's no need to pay any attention. So yeah. what we've done in our lives is try to make things simple um, by labeling them and so on. And then we get to the point where, well, we don't know how to amuse ourselves because yeah. it's just making a bed. But no, yeah. everything is potentially interesting. Yeah, and, and I agreed. And, and, I, and you're reminding me of just how important that is every day. And, and uh, if I may, I know you were sharing earlier, you've had a really busy day. You've done a ton of things already. Yeah. You're, you're on the East Coast time. And so how do you personally do that for yourself? Like, well, I'm so, curious what you do besides yeah. counting the cars. What yeah, else, no, what it's, else it's, it's, interesting. it's interesting because uh, one of my students is doing a study with this where if you, your uh, audience can't see me, but in hearing me, you may get a sense of this, that I start off down here, where, imagine wherever down here is. <laughs> and as, you know, as the conversation goes or my lectures go, I get more and more engaged, more and more excited. So rather than wearing down, um, I become uh, energized. You bolt, you go up. Exactly. Right. And exactly. And, um, so and how do you do that? So do you just like notice your modulation? Do you? No, no. It's just whatever I'm talking about, I am, it's real. You know, I'm not just repeating, even if I say something I've said a thousand times, as I'm saying it, it feels brand new. And, um, and as I've said that the data are clear that mindfulness is energy begetting, not consuming. Energy and beginning. Most, I want to make sure I got right. that one. Yeah. And that most fatigue, you know, is really a function of boredom. So, you know, we did this, this study, and some of these are very simple. Let me give the, the simplest version of this. If we tell people to do 100 jumping jacks and tell us when they get tired, mm -hmm. they tend to get tired around uh, 67. All right, two-thirds of the way through. That's pretty good. If we tell people to do um, 200 jumping jacks. They get tired at 134. Wait, Okay. when you tell them to do how many? What was okay. that one? So you're doing 100 jumping jacks. Yeah. Oh, okay. do more. So you're gonna get tired around two thirds of the way. So if we tell other people, now do 200 jumping jacks, okay. twice as many, they still get tired around two thirds of the way through. <laughs> but they're, they're doing much more. So what I'm suggesting is that when we begin a task, we sort of overlay it with um, a beginning, middle, and end. And, um, you know, around the middle, uh, we start getting tired. And then eventually yeah. we work ourselves where we just have to give it up. 
Yeah. Uh, Frank Beach did this study, I think it was in the 50s, 40s, I don't know, ages ago, uh, with um, rats. Wonderful little study. So he'd have a boy rat and a girl rat copulate, and <clears throat> then the boy rat is tired. So he, there's a refractory period. However, if right after he copulates with uh, one little girl rat, <laughs> They introduce another little girl rat, so it's a different scenario, Whoa. a different context. He starts all over again. That's a smart but rat. He, he, well, he, yes, but he doesn't need the rat. And the point is that much of fatigue is a psychological concept. So if you see things as the same, it's always the same. Then you get exhausted with the sameness, and then you need to break out of it. If you're noticing differences, uh, and everything is always changing, then it's like change, you know, you're changing in some sense the context every few minutes yeah. and it just gets more and more exciting. Yeah, I think that is such a, like looping it all into your active noticing concepts of, of we, we have to create the choice. I'm hearing we have to create the choice to choose different and newness, but also just the noticing is so important. And the complacency or the boredom and all of that is like how we get sucked into those older, maybe not so exciting patterns of that maybe grow up with, or we know about, because that's what I think a lot of folks in the world do, but we can do differently, whether you're the smart rat doing his thing <laughs> or, um, you know, you think you can do more jumping jacks. It reminds me of a, <laughs> I had this, a similar experience in my training in, in my emotional intelligence training, um, with the right foundation where I was asked to do push-ups, and then you kept, we were, we kept getting asked and like, it was kind of that same concept because we always were doing more than you thought, but we didn't know we were doing that. It was in the moment kind of experiment. Yeah. I did like 200 push-ups and craziness no. and people were like yelling and crying and but we did it because you could you could choose differently so my guess is it's all about the like the framing in our minds yeah. but we need no, other people, people help us with that too no people have no idea um <laughs> how much they can do with anything yeah. that yeah. the world has imposed all sorts of limits that um that's what my research is basically about um smashing you know showing that those limits are, uh, are a fiction. Yeah, and you do smash those limits. That's that's actually, I think, accurate in that, yeah, you're kind of like just pulling the rug out from everyone's feet because that's what isn't, that's what's expected is these limits. And then you're like, hang on a second. These yeah. year old guys are like moving around like they're 30 or, you know, the like all of those. That's right. Now that's so, the yeah. counterclockwise study. Yeah, the, um, but we have lots of new research. Let me uh, end this with this on um, chronic illnesses. So most people, when you, you're told you have a chronic illness, and we're doing it with COVID now, but we don't have the data yet, but we have the data with multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, we're getting data with stroke, MC at myocognitive impairment, chronic uh, pain, arthritis, and lots of big heavies, stress and depression as well. Okay, so what is it that we're doing? So you get a diagnosis and people then think, that whatever they have is going to stay the same or it's just going to get worse. And that's the, the mindlessness that operates with respect to the health world. Now, nothing stays the same. We've already said that. Everything is always changing. Sometimes it's a little better, sometimes it's a little worse. Well, with illness, what happens is we tend to only notice when it gets worse. 
The key to health, oddly, is noticing when it gets better. Okay, so what we do is we call people throughout the day, uh, throughout the week, and sometimes it's two weeks, and we simply ask them, how do you feel now? And is it better or worse than it was before? And why? Well, three things happen. The first is that people tend to think they have the symptoms all the time, and now they say they don't have the symptoms all the time. So let's say, Rachel, you're stressed, and you think you're stressed all the time. Well, no one is anything all the time. So now I call you, and you know, right now, turns out you're not stressed. So you immediately feel better because you went from thinking stressed all the time to, well, not all the time. Then you start looking around for, well, why am I not stressed now? You say, ah, because you're talking to your old friend, Ellen Langer. Okay, so what that means is we have to speak more often. Um, the point is that if, you're, um, if you ask the question why, it initiates a mindful search. And as I've said now several times, that mindfulness in general is good for your health. And then finally, if you're looking for a solution, you're much more likely to find it. So we have illnesses where the medical world says there is no control, so you don't bother looking for it. And um, in fact, all of the diseases I've said, are um, uh, we're able to ameliorate the symptoms with this. And the main takeaway for people is they didn't know before, they don't know now, everything is always changing, everything looks different from different perspectives, nobody knows. You're not less smart than the next person, nobody knows. Some people think they know, but they're wrong. You can't know because it's always changing. So the attitude you want to assume is one of uh, confidence but uncertainty. And then everything becomes an adventure. You don't have to practice anything. You just, as soon as you know that you don't know it because it's not the same, you're naturally gonna look at it. If you came to visit me right now, I'm in my house in Provincetown. Um, you've probably never been to Provincetown. I went you? when I was in middle school on a family okay, so vacation. Okay, you don't remember much about but Provincetown. But not much. Okay, so if you came to visit me, you wouldn't have to engage in any practice. You just expect that you're not gonna know that things are gonna be new. And then you would notice. And then, as I said, that act of noticing is um, energizing and enlivening and turns out to be important for our health. Yes, and like mic drop, I don't think I could say it better than that. And yeah, it's so important to know that we can create that for ourselves. You don't have to take a long trip or check out or it's about being in the moment to actively notice and, and cultivate that for ourselves. So great great way to end our conversation. I have one last question for you, ah, Ellen. And I know, yeah. um, what do you do to, to de-stress and unwind? I can see this lovely painting behind you. I know there's something there in huh. one of your passions, but tell yeah. us what you well, do. Well, I don't have to de-stress because I don't get stressed in the first place. Nice. Now, I'm human. It doesn't mean that I've never experienced stress. Of You're course. actively noticing all the time. How could you but, possibly you know, be stressed? Um, but, um, uh, I, I started to paint when I was 50, last week, no, I'm 73 right now. And um, it's just great fun. And what would happen is I would paint and something would happen 
And uh, then I'd want to know, is it more generally true or just true for me? So then I'd go back and be a psychologist and do some research and go back and forth. And I wrote about all of this in my book, um, Becoming an Artist, uh, which is really about interpersonal mindfulness. That's you great. Know, the, the one book that you probably would, would have been good to mention for people is the 25-year anniversary edition of Mindfulness. So the book that really started a lot of this. And... In it, um, it the, the it's a general take. It tells you exactly what mindfulness is. Lots of research, but research that's related to relationships, health, business, um, and uh, uh, in general, it's 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 an easy read because why shouldn't it be? Yeah. Well, you have an updated introduction to that. I, I know I've, yes, I've read it, yeah. and it's about just how this has changed in the last twenty five years since you originally wrote it with your studies. And there's a lot of great studies that you've cited in there too. It's a wonderful well, introduction to your work, I think. Yeah, thank you. Thanks I mean, I can that. take a, a minute if you want and tell yeah. people, you know, so aside from this attention to symptom variability, which is a fancy way of saying being mindful, um, lots of the new work is a further test of this mind-body unity idea, which simply says mind-body, these are just words, put them back together, and then wherever you put the mind, you're necessarily putting the body. So the original study was the counterclockwise study to which you referred earlier, where we took old men to a timeless retreat and had them live as if they were their younger selves. The study is now well known, so I won't go through it. I can say it's well known because if you watch, I don't know which season it is, it's the Simpsons go to Havana. They actually describe, I think it's either season eight, episode 27, episode 26, you know, whatever. Yeah. And Google, um, Simpsons go to Havana. Um, But the more recent versions of these, so we have people, you're in a sleep lab and you wake up and you look at the clock and the clock says you got two hours more sleep than you got or two hours fewer or the amount of sleep you actually got. And it turns out biological and cognitive functioning follows perceived sleep, not the actual sleep. We have diabetics, this is the last one I'll tell you. Diabetics who they come in and they're gonna play computer games. um, And uh, they're told that change the game you're playing every 15 minutes or so. That's just to ensure that they'll look at the clock. And again, now the clock is going twice as fast as real time, half as fast as real time, or real time. And what happens is blood sugar level follows perceived time, not actual time. So the control we have over our health and well-being just far exceeds what most people take to be real. And it's important to recognize that, especially in these times of COVID, because there are many things that one can do for their health. And um, what we should be doing is all the right things, is being mindful is going to be a protective factor to keep you well, make it less likely that you get it. If you do get it, uh, then practicing this attention to symptom variability is likely to um, uh, reduce, if not totally eliminate the symptoms. At any rate, clearly I believe that the answer to almost all ills is to be more mindful. Yeah. When you're more mindful, you're healthier, um, you, um, your relationships are better, if people see you as charismatic, uh, it leaves its imprint on what you do. 40 years of research is a lot of time. 
40 years, you're, you would no doubt, yes, have so much to back up what you're saying right now. And, and thank you so much for sharing your critical work in the world, Ellen. I'm so grateful for you to join us on the podcast today. I love what you're sharing and I can't wait to see what else you can come up with. <laughs> thank you so much. All right, Rachel, my pleasure. You stay well. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening today to the PauseCast. If you haven't already, please subscribe so that you don't miss a show. And if you haven't already, please rate us, leave your review. We would love to hear from you and help us get the word out. If you know of anyone who you think might benefit from the tools or discussions that you've found helpful, then invite them to join us. Share the PauseCast with those who you think might find this useful to become more self-aware. Remember, sharing is caring. I'll see you next time on the PauseCast.